I'm being grotesque, but you got to be. You see what I mean? You gotta be crazy. It's too late to be sane. Too late. You gotta go full tilt bozo because you're only given a little spark of madness and if you lose that, you're nothing. From me to you, don't ever lose that because it keeps you alive. That's my only love. Crazy. Robin Williams. From his uproarious stand-up comedy to his serious turns in dramas like Goodwill Hunting and Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams always seemed to be larger than life. He was a figure everyone in America knew and loved. But did anyone truly know him? Could anyone, even his family, friends, or doctors, understand the workings of his rapid-fire mind? Who was the real man behind the pop culture legend? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures on the ParCast Network. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing legendary comedian Robin Williams. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast shows on your favorite podcast directory. A lot of you ask how to help the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. And now, back to the life of Robin Williams. From Mrs. Doubtfire to Hook to his beloved performance as the genie in Disney's Aladdin, Robin Williams' iconic acting roles helped shape the childhood of millions of millennials. To their parents, Williams was the bold and out-of-control stand-up who got his start as an odd alien on the television sitcom Mork and Mindy. Still, many others first witnessed the strength of Williams' acting in his breakthrough dramatic performance in Good Morning Vietnam. Though how each person first saw Robin Williams perform may be different, there was one universal constant that anyone could agree on. He was a -a one-of-a-kind talent. But dig a little deeper, and you'll see that though he was the man who made the world laugh, he was also a man who struggled with hardship, addiction, and depression. The complexity and contradiction of his personality is perhaps why Robin Williams was able to capture the hearts and imagination of so many people with his talents. He was an everyman who grew up with tremendous wealth and privilege. He was a comedian who made others laugh while dealing with his own darkness. He was an actor whose roles inspired others to be better, while his own struggles with addiction made his personal life worse. In his last years, Williams secretly suffered from a debilitating disease and, in 2014, committed suicide at the age of 63. But before tragedy put an end to his life, Robin Williams brought so much joy to the world. Robin Williams was born in Chicago on July 21, 1951. His father, Robert, was an executive for the Ford Motor Company, and his mother, Lori, was a model. Williams had two half-brothers, but they were much older than him, and he was raised essentially as an only child. 
With two successful working parents, the young Robin led a lonely early childhood in suburban Lake Forest, Illinois. According to Williams, he was raised in a family where an ideal child was seen and not heard. He described his father as classy and ethical, but stern. Yet despite that serious background, it was during his early childhood that his comedic talents began to emerge. Williams started being funny in an attempt to capture his mother's attention. He would do anything to get a laugh out of her, and he usually succeeded. But still, the comedian later characterized these years as lonely. Life felt a whole lot lonelier in 1963, when the Williams family moved from the Chicago suburbs into a giant 40-room mansion outside of Detroit. It was in that giant, empty house where he learned to play with himself. You mean by himself? Don't censor the messenger, Vanessa. With no other children around, Williams had to play with his toy soldiers alone and he took on every role. He staged anachronistic battles between Indians and Nazis, or cowboys and fighter pilots, giving them all different voices and characters. Every scene was like a one-man improv show. For the rest of his life, this time in his childhood remained incredibly important to Williams. Even as an adult, he kept his childhood toy collection stashed away in his home, hidden behind a wall panel in what he called his secret room. While William's early childhood antics were reserved for the attic and his mother, when he entered high school, his charisma and energy captivated his fellow classmates. In 1967, when Williams was 16, his father retired early and moved the family across the country to Tiburon, California, a wealthy town just outside San Francisco. Spending his teen years near San Francisco during the late 60s had a tremendous impact on Williams. During the 60s, a quiet and relatively cheap neighborhood in the city, around the intersection of Haight Street and Ashbury Street, underwent a massive transformation. This area became the legendary Haight-Ashbury District, the birthplace of the hippie counterculture movement. Strange as it sounds, to understand the direction that Robin Williams' life took, it's important to understand the hippies. In response to the strict norms and expectations of the straight-laced 1950s, many young people set out to differentiate themselves from the pro-capitalist ideals of their parents' generation. They set out to forge a brand new path that encouraged free thought and new ideas. This counterculture movement started with the Beat Generation. The Beats were a group of writers and artists centered in New York City in the 1950s. They rejected traditional conformist American values and instead embraced Eastern religions, sexual exploration, and experimentation with drugs. As those thinkers made their way west to San Francisco in the 1960s, these same core values were embraced by the next generation, who called themselves hippies. In 1967, the same year Williams and his family moved to Tiburon, the hippie counterculture exploded in Haight-Ashbury, just 16 miles south of Robin's new home. That January, an event called the Human Bee-In was held at Golden Gate Park. This was sort of a coming out for hippie culture. It was at this event that Timothy Leary, the psychologist who advocated for and popularized the use of LSD, spoke the six words that inspired a generation of flower children. Turn on, tune in, drop out. This mantra encapsulated what hippie culture was about. Communal living, 
distrusting authority, and of course, dropping out. The term dropping out was taken literally by many high school and college students who quit school in favor of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So the same year Williams was adjusting to a new life and new school, thousands upon thousands of his peers were dropping acid to escape the cold and lonely trappings of real life. Sounds like something a lonely, imaginative kid like Robin would really take to. That it was. When Williams lived in Detroit, he was a great student, a part of the Honors Society, and was even elected class president. But after moving to California... Well, let's just say by the time he graduated in 1969, Williams was voted most likely to not succeed. He grew out his hair, started to dabble with weed and alcohol, and hung around crowds where acid was the thing to do. The teachers in Tiburon were just as interested in acid as the student body. Williams described the structure of his education as loose. Teachers were even dropping acid before teaching classes. But it was there at Redwood High School that Williams got his start in drama classes. He recalled that he first got the itch after doing spot-on impressions of teachers at a senior year variety show and getting big laughs from his classmates. When it was time to go to college, however, Williams decided to go a more traditional route. He went to Claremont Men's College to study a more practical academic field, landing on political science. But he quickly found the classes he was most interested in were the acting ones. Why? Well, they were the only classes that were co-ed. And while Williams was a decent student in his traditional classes, he excelled in the theater program. In particular, he became horribly addicted to improvisation classes. He loved that improv provided the ability to play off of other people and create in the moment. He liked it so much, he auditioned for the Juilliard School's prestigious theater program in New York City. As fate would have it, he was accepted, and he received a full scholarship. So in 1973, Williams moved across the country to New York City. He was one of 20 students accepted into Juilliard Drama's freshman class and one of two accepted into the advanced program, along with another iconic actor in the making, Christopher Reeve. As Williams put it, he was accepted because he was a character actor and Reeve was accepted because he was devastatingly handsome. Reeve remembered Williams fondly as well. He recalled, quote, Williams wore tie-dyed shirts with tracksuit bottoms and talked a mile a minute. I'd never seen so much energy contained in one person. He was like an untied balloon that had been inflated and immediately released, end quote. Williams excelled at Juilliard, applying the same improvisation skills he'd already perfected. His professor, Edith Skinner, a renowned dialects coach, was blown away by Williams' ability to instantly pick up accents like German, Scottish, English, and Russian. Williams left Juilliard during his junior year in 1976, in part due to one of his acting teachers, John Hausman, saying the prestigious school had nothing left to teach him. With undeniable talent and half a college degree, unsure where life was going to take him, Williams decided to move back home to San Francisco. It was here that comedy took over his life. In only two short years, Williams would skyrocket to stardom and become a household name. Coming up, we'll take a look at how Robin Williams went from unknown to American icon. Now back to the story. 
A decade after San Francisco became a mecca for hippies, the city transformed once again. By the late 1970s, San Fran became a beacon for stand-up comics. A major part of the city's comedy renaissance was 24-year-old Robin Williams. In 1976, Williams was back in San Francisco after dropping out of Juilliard. With acting gigs in the city few and far between, Williams was looking for a new direction. And that's when he found a sign. There was a literal sign. It said, Comedy Workshop. And that very sign led him down the stairs to a class held in the basement of a church. The workshop was for stand-up comedy, a form that Williams had yet to try. But he had always been comfortable improvising with a group, and he soon realized that stand-up was ostensibly just improvising by yourself. So, armed with a confidence to take the stage by himself... Williams began performing in clubs and bars throughout San Francisco. Stand-up was still a fledgling art form, and comedians usually just performed short acts while bands set up their equipment at jazz and folk venues. But Williams loved the challenge of getting up in front of people who weren't expecting what he was about to do. His first stand-up sets were immediately after a lesbian poetry night, hardly the most natural audience for a male comedian. But no matter what crowd he was playing to, Williams was able to read the room and play off their energy. As he recalled, quote, Performing comedy in San Francisco to begin with is pretty wild. You've got the human game preserved to play off of, and it's a lot of great characters everywhere. You work off that, and then you play the rooms, and eventually you get to a point where you're playing a club that is a comedy club with other comics, end quote. It was at one of those comedy clubs that Williams got his first paid gig, as well as an opportunity to show off his theater training. Right before Williams was set to go on stage at a comedy club in Orange County, the entire sound system blew. The producer of the show told Williams to go on and perform anyways. Luckily, as a Juilliard-trained actor who had learned to entertain full-size theaters without a microphone... He had no problem projecting his voice to the rambunctious crowd. He went out into the audience and played off what the crowd had to say, keeping the show running smoothly until the sound system began operating again. Williams credits his theater training as the secret ingredient that helped him cook up a new comedy style. It was improvisational and reactionary. Just as much as the audience looked to him for laughs, Williams looked to the audience to guide his material. Stand-up proved to be a perfect way to showcase his two greatest strengths, breakneck improv and polished performance. Skills that would otherwise seem to be at odds with each other were in perfect harmony at comedy clubs. So it's no surprise that after only two years of performing on the comedy circuit, he started booking stand-up sets for television. In 1977, at the age of 25, Williams was featured on the Home Box Office Network and was cast in a short-lived reboot of the sketch and variety show, Laugh-In. But though he was finding nearly immediate success, the late hours and pressure of stand-up started to catch up to Williams. Like many other comics, Williams struggled with the long hours and the demanding schedule of touring and performing. By 1977, he turned to alcohol and drugs to help him cope with the stress. While Williams insists he was always sober while performing, he was often nursing hangovers from the night before when he took the stage. He began to habitually use cocaine, a popular drug for performers in the late 70s. He later acknowledged how the whole lifestyle takes a toll. He said, quote, the lifestyle, 
partying, drinking, drugs, it's brutal. If you're on the road, it's even more brutal. You gotta come back down to mellow your ass out, and then performing takes you back up. It didn't surprise Williams that many of his peers couldn't take it in the long run. As he put it, quote, they flame out because it comes and goes. Suddenly they're hot, and then somebody else is hot. Sometimes they get very bitter. Sometimes they just give up. Sometimes they snap. The pressure kicks in. You become obsessed, and then you lose that focus that you need. End quote. Williams, too, seemed to be at the brink of snapping. His improvised, increasingly manic stand-up sets started to worry friends and onlookers. Film and theater critic Vincent Canby said that Williams' sets were often troubling because of how his routines dangerously hung between a hilarious riff and a total meltdown. But before his personal issues could bring the star to his knees, his sheer talent and dedication caught the attention of a casting agent who happened to be the sister of Gary Marshall. In the late 70s, writer and director Gary Marshall had a hit on his hands, Happy Days, a sitcom about teenagers coming of age in Milwaukee during the 1950s. By 1978, Happy Days had entered its fourth season and Marsha was looking for new ideas to keep the show fresh. He recalled, quote, My seven-year-old Scott was reluctant to watch Laverne and Shirley or Happy Days or any show I did, so I asked him, what do you like? And Scott's response? I only like space. Well, this stumped Marshall. Happy Days took place in the 50s, when man hadn't even made it to the moon. But little Scott had an answer for that, too. It could be a dream. And thus, Mork the Zany Extraterrestrial was created. By a chance of fate, Robin Williams was scouted for the one-episode guest role. Williams appeared on Happy Days in February 1978. In the conclusion of the episode, it was revealed that Mork's alien visitation was all a dream. But the character proved to be such an instant hit that Marshall decided to create an entire spin-off series. That fall saw the premiere of Mork and Mindy, a sitcom centered on Mork's life in present-day Colorado. Within months, the sitcom became the third most-watched show in America, reaching 60 million viewers a week. Robin Williams became a bona fide star. His career was on the rise, and he was set to live happily ever after. On the surface, it certainly seemed that way for a while. That same year, in 1978, Williams married his first wife, Valerie Velarde. The next year, the comedian graced the cover of Time magazine. Williams' wild improvised characters and jokes struck a nerve with adults and children alike. His notoriety helped launch a series of adult-oriented stand-up specials on HBO, while his character Mork was slapped on lunchboxes, folders, and dolls. With a universal appeal that only seemed to grow, it's no surprise that Williams' ambitions started to grow out of this world, space puns intended. By 1980, Williams believed he was ready to take his television stardom to the silver screen with his debut film, Popeye. Unfortunately, audiences didn't agree. The film was a financial and critical dud. Shortly after, Mork and Mindy fizzled out and was canceled after four seasons. And as his star suddenly fell, Williams once again turned to drugs and alcohol. His career and his life could have taken a nosedive into oblivion if it wasn't for two key moments in the early 80s. The first was the death of Williams' friend, 
superstar comedian John Belushi. Even more than his bold characters and comedy chops, Belushi was known for his hard partying. Williams would occasionally go along for Belushi's infamous wild nights. On one of those particular nights, March 5, 1982, mere hours after Williams left the party, Belushi died from an overdose. Williams' first child was about to be born, and Belushi's death was a wake-up call. The very next day, on March 6th, Williams went cold turkey. His son, Zachary Williams, was born on April 11, 1983, and Robin stayed sober for decades afterwards. Shortly after getting clean, Williams had another life-changing moment. He met Marsha Garces. Marsha Garces was an artist studying textiles and waiting tables when she was hired to be the nanny of 18-month-old Zachary Williams. The Milwaukee native had never shown a particular interest in children, but the prospect of living on the Williams 600-acre estate sounded pretty good, so she took the job. Marsha didn't interact much with Robin or his wife, but she was the constant companion of baby Zach. The child and nanny formed a strong bond. In 1986, after two years, Robin Williams trusted Marsha enough to hire her as his personal assistant. Around that same time, after years of riding alongside her husband's constant work, late-night performances, and hard partying, Williams' wife Valerie had had enough. She left, took custody of Zach, and moved in with a new boyfriend. That same year, Marsha accompanied Williams on a national stand-up tour. By the end of the trip, they had become a couple. More than that, Marsha Garces became an important collaborator and partner for Williams. His relationship with her ushered in the most commercially and critically successful time period of his career. This partnership started in 1986 when filming began for Good Morning Vietnam. Good morning, Vietnam! Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Time to rock it from the Delta to the DMZ. Is that me or does that sound like an Elvis Presley movie? Viva Da Nang. Oh, Viva Da Nang. Da Nang me, Da Nang me. Why don't they get a rope and hang me? Hey, is this a little too early for being that loud? Hey, too late. Good Morning Vietnam was loosely based on the life of a real radio DJ for the Armed Forces Radio named Adrian Cronauer. The film was a critical success, much to the credit of Williams' improvisation while playing the DJ. The film earned rave reviews and scored Williams his first Oscar nomination. While Williams went off script for much of the film, the term improvisation is a bit of a misnomer. Painstaking research and rewriting went into Williams' portrayal. Much of that work was done by Williams himself, along with Marsha Garces. Marsha helped him with everything, from memorizing lines to getting to set on time. Her responsibilities only increased when filming began for 1989's Dead Poets Society. While Williams' marriage to his first wife, Valerie, had all but ended years ago, during the filming of Dead Poets, the divorce was just being finalized. With the threat of losing custody of his son looming, Garces kept Williams focused on his performance as the eccentric English teacher John Keating. A performance that earned Williams his second nomination for Best Actor by the Academy Awards. The next eight years of his career were filled with hit movies and iconic performances, including The Fisher King, Hook, Mrs. Doubtfire, Jumanji, The Birdcage, and Jack. 
Williams even played a role in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, as well as Woody Allen's Deconstructing Harry. In 1992, Robin Williams portrayed what would become one of his most beloved characters, the genie in Disney's animated feature, Aladdin. At the time of Aladdin's release, Williams was already a huge star. He was the primary draw for most of the films he was a part of, yet in Aladdin he was going to be playing a supporting role. Because of this, Williams struck an unusual deal with Disney. First, he didn't want his name to be used in the marketing of the film. He was starring in another big-budget family movie, Toys, in the same year, and he didn't want to detract from that feature. He also insisted that the genie not take up more than 25% of any advertisements for the movie, and that Disney could not use his voice for any toys, video games, or other merchandise related to the movie. Also, oddly enough, Williams accepted the scale minimum payment of $75,000 for his voice talents. Williams believed this role would just be a small, unmemorable cameo in a kid's movie. But what it became, thanks to his irresistible performance, was one of the most iconic animated movie roles of all time. Though the character was originally a relatively small role, Williams improvised impressions, songs, jokes, and riffs as the genie in the recording studio. It resulted in over 30 hours of tape for the animators to pick and choose what to bring to life. I can say stuff that they may not be able to draw. If they did it on their own, they go, don't do that. But I, I say it, then they've got the carte blanche to go out and draw it. And that's why they can make fun of Disney. They can put in, you know, Walter Cronkite have um, Woody Allen and you know we can do there were things I put in there that you will never see Disney took that audio and retooled the story to make Aladdin the classic it is making Genie one of its most beloved characters now let's take a magic carpet ride from Agrabah to Boston the setting of 1997's Goodwill Hunting a movie that would finally win Robin Williams an Academy Award you're not perfect sport and let me save you the suspense. This girl you met, she isn't perfect either. But the question is whether or not you're perfect for each other. That's the whole deal. That's what intimacy is all about. Goodwill Hunting, written by a then-unknown team of Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, was about a genius janitor from Boston attending court-mandated therapy after assaulting a cop. Robin Williams played his therapist, Dr. Sean McGuire. Williams' performance is subtle and subdued. It was so real and touching that years later, he said people still came up to him to thank him for that role. As he put it, quote, Goodwill hunting is something more than a movie. It's something like an emotional experience, end quote. The movie, though made with a relatively small budget of $10 million, grossed over $200 million at the box office. The success of the movie surprised Williams, and his Oscar win was surreal to him as well. After the big win in 1998, Williams was congratulated and lauded, but he knew that praise and goodwill are both short-lived in Hollywood. He said, quote, for about a week, everyone was like, hey there, you won an Oscar. And then a week later, it's like, hey, Mork. After Goodwill Hunting, Williams continued to portray sweet, sympathetic lead characters in films, including Patch Adams and Bicentennial Man. But he also started taking on darker roles. And by the turn of the century, Williams' own life began to turn darker as well. 
Coming up, we'll look into the mysterious mental and physical ailments that plagued Robin Williams' final years. Now back to the story. After Robin Williams' Oscar win for Good Will Hunting in 1998, it looked like the actor's success was soaring to new heights. But that glorious moment may have actually been the peak of his long career. By the early 2000s, Williams' success began to wane. While filming Christopher Nolan's 2002 thriller Insomnia in a remote Alaskan town, Williams started drinking again after over 20 years of sobriety. Who knew that filming a movie about a police detective slowly losing his mind in a remote Alaskan town where the sun never sets would be bad for an actor's mental health. The dark character may have been difficult, but the long filming schedule and separation from his loved ones didn't help either. Though his drinking returned, fortunately, the star didn't also pick up his cocaine habit. He knew it might kill him if he did. Throughout the early 2000s, as Williams entered his 50s, his long career started to fade. He appeared in some major hits like the Night at the Museum franchise and Happy Feet, but the former star was relegated to supporting roles. Even in lead roles, like his turn in Bobcat Goldthwait's cult classic, World's Greatest Dad, Williams was unable to elicit the universal praise that characterized his earlier works. As his career faded, so did his mental health. In 2006, Williams went back to rehab for his drinking problem, but his personal life didn't recover. Marcia Garces filed for divorce in 2008. The stress of the divorce and his intense working schedule may have contributed to his heart problems, which led to an aorta replacement in 2009. And while Williams married for a third time in 2011, this time to graphic designer Susan Schneider, his depression only continued to worsen. By 2013, Williams' film career had stalled, and his comeback sitcom, The Crazy Ones on CBS, was dogged by critics and struggling to find viewers. While filming the CBS sitcom, Williams temporarily moved from his home in Marin County to Los Angeles and stayed by himself in a meager rented apartment. His new wife, Susan, who was a frequent traveler, decided to stay behind in Marin County. At the time, taking the sitcom seemed like a great move for the aging star. After two divorces and another wedding, Williams was struggling financially. He had to sell his palatial 600-acre home in Napa and was forced to take almost every low-budget film he was offered to make ends meet. Working on a sitcom would provide a healthy, steady paycheck. Plus, the regular filming schedule would give him some much-needed structure. But the move to Los Angeles was lonely for Robin. He was away from his wife and his longtime assistant, Rebecca Irwin Spencer, for the first time in years. His son, Zach, who is now 30, didn't even come visit. This was something that later on, Zach would deeply regret. He said, quote, I think that was a very lonely period for him. In retrospect, I feel like I should have been there, spending time with him, because someone who needs support was not getting the support he needed, end quote. William's sitcom only lasted one season, and as his career tapered off, his health began to decline too. Beginning in October 2013, Williams experienced a large array of strange and disconnected symptoms. His booming voice weakened, his back stooped, sometimes his joints would just freeze, leaving him unable to move. 
He couldn't sleep. He had cramps, tremors, and had trouble urinating. His wife Susan was worried, but also frustrated. It was a new list of symptoms every month, and she began to worry the whole ordeal was psychosomatic. She recalled, quote, It was like playing whack-a-mole. Which symptom is it this month? I thought, is my husband a hypochondriac? We're chasing it, and there's no answers, and by now we'd tried everything, end quote. In 2014, Williams flew to Vancouver to film Night at the Museum, Secret of the Tomb. This was a decision he made against the best wishes of his family and loved ones. At the time, he was gaunt and his motor functions were noticeably impaired, but he desperately wanted to work. When he worked, he felt like himself. His makeup artist, Sherry Minns, understood this. She said, quote, he operated on working. That was the true love of his life, above his children, above everything. If he wasn't working, he was a shell of himself. And when he worked, it was like a light bulb was turned on, end quote. But Minns also saw that Williams was not well, adding, quote, He was sobbing in my arms at the end of every day. It was horrible, horrible, but I just didn't know, end quote. When Robin returned home to Tiburon in early May 2014, his wife Susan knew it would be bad, but she didn't anticipate exactly how bad. Quote, like a 747 airplane coming in with no landing gear, bad, end quote. When he returned from Vancouver, Robin had delusions, suspicions, and obsessions. One night he woke up believing his friend, comedian Mort Saul, was in grave danger. Susan had to stay up, talking him out of driving to Saul's house until 3.30 in the morning. In late May 2014, at the age of 63, Robin Williams was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, a degenerative disease that inhibits motor functions and mental cognition. Though many other high-profile celebrities like Muhammad Ali and Michael J. Fox have also been diagnosed with the disease, a cure has never been found. And the symptoms, as Robin Williams biographer David Itzkoff put it, were the loquacious and limber comic's worst nightmare. According to Itzkoff, quote, To Robin, it was the realization of one of his most deeply felt and lifelong fears, to be told that he had an illness that would rob him of his faculties by small, imperceptible increments every day that would hollow him out and leave behind a depleted husk of a human being, end quote. Though Williams started treatments and visited specialists, the comic entered a period of serious depression, knowing that the disease had no cure. His friends realized that as he corresponded with them, he was essentially saying goodbye. On August 11, 2014, Williams grew paranoid about some of his designer watches being stolen. He stuffed them in a sock and drove them over to a friend's house for safekeeping. When he came home, he told his wife he loved her and went to bed. Because of his delusions and inability to sleep, the couple were sleeping in separate rooms. So when Susan woke up the next morning and saw that Robin hadn't come out of his room, she figured he was finally getting some much-needed sleep. But by 11, Robin still hadn't surfaced. Susan and Robin's assistant, Rebecca, grew concerned. At 11.42, Rebecca used a paperclip to pick the lock to Robin's bedroom door. Once inside, Rebecca saw what had happened. Robin had hanged himself with a belt. He was dead. 
What had been feared has now been confirmed. Robin Williams died by his own hand. Mr. Williams' life ended from asphyxia due to hanging. Marin County Sheriff's Department Lieutenant Keith Boyd says a preliminary report shows Williams used a belt to end his life. He was last seen Sunday night by his wife before she went to bed. The following day, a personal assistant found his lifeless body. The investigation continues. Toxicology testing will be conducted to determine if Mr. Williams had any chemical substances in his system at the time of his death. Also unclear whether there was a suicide note. I'm Oscar Wells Gabriel. By the time the news had spread, the narrative of William's suicide had already been finely crafted by media outlets all over the world. He was the sad clown. After struggling with addiction and depression his whole life, the demons finally caught up with Robin. The secret that had thus far been kept from the world, that Williams was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, was another nice wrinkle for tributes and think pieces. Here was the energetic and boundlessly strong man faced with a future in a wheelchair. Was that the factor that led him to hang himself in his bedroom? Real life, however, is never as neat as a cable news soundbite. And the real truth wasn't known until three months after Williams' death when the autopsy report was released. As it turned out, Robin Williams was not suffering from Parkinson's disease. He had one of the worst reported cases of a neurological ailment called Lewy body disease. Lewy body disease happens when abnormal structures, called Lewy bodies, build up in areas of the brain. The disease may cause a wide range of symptoms, including delusions, loss of memory, and muscle stiffness. It's often confused with Alzheimer's, or in William's case, Parkinson's disease. Not much is known about the disease, and there is no cure. But understanding the disease may help us understand the end of William's life. The reports indicated that Louis bodies completely ravaged William's brain. So much so that a doctor explained, quote, it was as if he had cancer throughout every organ of his body, end quote. His wife, Susan, in an open letter published in Neurology in 2015, described it as the terrorist inside my husband's brain. In that letter, Susan spoke openly about the disease and her husband's suicide. She said, it was not depression that killed my husband. Depression was one of, let's call it, 50 symptoms, and it was a small one. In a way, Williams' misdiagnosis could be seen as another piece of the great challenge the legendary actor faced his whole life, being understood. Was he beloved? Absolutely. Did he bring joy to countless people around the world? Undeniably. Robin Williams was always seen. He was always known. But was the central desire of his life ever understood? Just as his disease was misdiagnosed, the comedic icon was also identified incorrectly. During his lifetime, he was something of a stage character, a tireless harbinger of joy. After his death, he was reduced to a tragic suicide, the victim of his inner demons. The complexities of the real man were always buried beneath the persona the media made of him. While he found an audience for his antics and built a family, his childhood loneliness carried all the way to his last moments. He was beloved, but never fully understood. Though he lived a full life, he, like every great figure, eventually passed on. All we're left with are his performances.
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. A new episode releases every other Wednesday. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Brian McGovern and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.